if a Viking uh, kills a fish and kills a sheep on the same day, buries them both in the ground in the year you know, 900 AD, and I come and dig both that fish and the sheep up on the same day in my excavations and radiocarbon date them, it will look like the fish is much older than the sheep. And then in addition to that, in the vicarage garden next door, there was a mass grave under a mound which contained the bones of nearly 300 people all mingled up together. And uh, with them were artifacts, including Viking weapons and also coins dating to exactly 872 to 875, which was yeah. <laughs> so as perfect as you could get. This is what you wish for as an archaeologist. You know, all the evidence was there. And a lot of that is actually going out there as well and you get quite a lot from walking around in that landscape because um, you can look at map and you can look at plans but when you're out there and you can see where the river is, where there's a height, where it's sort of safe, where you've got access to resources then sometimes that really helps as well. Welcome to Saga Briefs, where we tell the stories behind the sagas. Welcome to our special interview with Dr. Kat Yarman of the University of Bristol. Dr. Yarman is a bioarchaeologist, or as she puts it, a doctor of the dead. She specializes in the study of biological remains. Her work includes a reevaluation of the bioarchaeological evidence of Rapa Nui, or Easter Island, and she's currently working with an international team of researchers to map the full genome sequence of the DNA recovered from Viking burials. She recently completed her doctorate on a mass burial in Repton, Derbyshire, which is why we wanted to bring her to your attention. The Repton site is of special interest for fans of the sagas. All the evidence of the site indicates that the burial is connected to the great heathen army. That's the Ragnarsson army, which of course, as you know, is a favorite of ours here at Saga Thing. And in 873 to 874, as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle tells us, This year, the heathen army moved from Lindsay to Repton, and there took up their winter quarters. They drove the king, Burvid, who had reigned about twenty-two winters, over the sea, and they subdued all that land. And the same year, they gave Sheowulf, an unwise king's thane, the Mercian kingdom to hold, and he swore oaths to them and gave hostages, that it should be ready for them on whatever day they would have it, and he would be ready with himself and with all those that would remain with him at the service of the army. Now, there's obviously a story to be told there, but that's a story for another day. Uh, at some point, while they were wintering in Repton, the great heathen army buried a large number of their dead in a mass grave. And that site, the Repton burial site, was originally excavated and studied 40 years ago, but some problems with dating the site has frustrated scholars ever since. And as you'll hear, Dr. Jarman and her colleagues have used new techniques and some good old-fashioned deductive reasoning to work out the solution to the problem of the Repton burials. I want to thank Dr. Jarman for taking the time to speak with me, especially in the middle of the media frenzy that followed the publication of her team's findings. Uh, somehow, in between talking with National Geographic, CNN, the BBC, a couple of dozen print and internet publications, and several different documentary teams, Dr. Jarman decided to hang with a saga nerd for an hour on a Friday morning, which is just awesome. Uh, she was even more than kind about a few technical glitches that cropped up, and which we've done our best to fix for the episode you're about to hear. She's also brilliant, and we had a great conversation. Uh, I hope we'll have a chance to check in with her and her remarkable research again in the future. Uh, but for now, here's our chat about the great heathen army and the burial at Repton. Most of what I, I do is working on skeletons, so it's working on uh, 
dead people. And uh, what I like doing is trying to find out, piece together as much information about them as possible. So it's looking at everything, their illnesses, diseases, what, how they died, um, and their lives as well, and looking at their diets. You know, what can I tell about their childhoods? And um, so I sort of feel like I'm quite connected with these individuals from the past. Uh, so I guess so then that makes you a bioarchaeologist as opposed to a non-bioarchaeologist, is that your focus is particularly on remains that are found at these sites? Yeah, so that's most of my work. And I do do a bit of bit of everything, really, but most of my, my PhD research especially was based on human remains, uh, especially isotope analysis, looking at diet and mobility and evidence for migration, and really trying to sort of piece together that information we can have from human remains. I mean, you've been all over the world doing this. You did this Easter Island uh, work, right? I mean, you're sort of, you were able to overturn the ecocide argument? Yeah, yeah, we basically found that that evidence for that didn't stack up at all. We found evidence that this rapid new population wasn't um, sort of destructive in the environments. They were actually quite careful manipulating soils, eating a sort of variety of the resources they had available, um, which I think is great. We've got all these new methods and techniques now that we can go back and look at these old sites and these old theories and say, well, does it still stack up? And a lot of the time the answer is, is no. Right. Well, and that's not. I mean, you're you're overturning what isn't even necessarily just older stuff. I mean, that's the uh, BBC History of the World in 100 Objects podcast, uh, which was less than a decade ago. Uh, their discussion mm. of Rapa Nui is built around the idea of ecocide. That, that's right. the entire dis- discussion of what happened in their history. Yeah, so yeah. Less than 10 years ago, that was still the the dominant uh, narrative. Yeah. Yeah, so things move on really quickly, and I think that's that's the key. Uh, we have to keep interrogating all this evidence and use all the methods that we have available as they develop and say, okay, can we still uh, prove what we thought we could prove? Um, and yeah, which is, which is quite fun to be part of, I think. So when you're tackling a site, I mean, can you just sort of take us through the kind of things that you do, the work that you do at a site? I mean, just starting from how do you identify a site for excavation? How do you know where to spend your time and your energy? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. Um, so at the moment, I'm, I'm continuing my work on the Great Army, especially on the Vikings. And we're, it's, that question is very, very relevant because actually part of the problem has been finding them and finding this Great Army. Because although we know quite a bit from some of the historical records, uh, we know the names of some sites, uh, apart from Repton and now more recently the, the, the another Viking camp at Torxy, we've not really been able to find these early Vikings. So what we're doing now, so you look at a lot of things. You look at what people have found before. So at Repton, there was some evidence um, when this was excavated in the 70s. So you look at what other people have discovered. um, And then you go in and you look at things like aerial photography. You can go on Google Maps, go and looking at crop marks, that sort of thing. Uh, We also use some LiDAR technology, so laser-borne imagery which is amazing and in the UK we're very lucky the Environment Agency have taken all this laser imagery across the country and made it publicly uh, available so you can go on a a website called lidarfinder.com and you can get this this sort of LiDAR imagery uh, of the entire country which is awesome and that gives you uh, topography and you can see things like um, mounds there are some Viking burial mounds at a site called Heathwood near Ingleby and if you type in Formark in this website, you can actually see those Viking cremation mounds uh, in the landscape. So we do that sort of thing, seeing, you know, where might we have the sites. Looking at like the map and finding like a place like Angleby, where you're the, just the bee suggests that there's been a Viking presence there, right? I mean, it's yeah, exactly. So you go, if you have all these place names, and if you've got, you know, clearly there was a sort of Scandinavian uh, presence there, then that's a really good starting point. And then you look at the topography and say, well, okay, if... I were a Viking and I had to find a place for my big army uh, to camp, you know, what would make sense? Where would I go? Where could I put my boat? Um, where would I be defended? So you, you sort of have to sort of almost get into that mindset, I guess. No, so you look at those things. It's, it's funny that you say that. That's uh, uh, I, I've talked to a few people now and that people who are really finding remarkable things and doing the work, that is a pattern that comes up over and over again. Getting... Okay into the heads of the people who were there rather yeah. than trying to be cleverer than them, just yeah. <laughs> trying to think the way they might have thought. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think, and a lot of that is actually going out there as well. And you get quite a lot from walking around in that landscape because um, you can look at map and you can look at plans. But when you're out there and you can see where the river is, where there's a height, where it's sort of safe, where you got access to resources, then sometimes that really helps as well. So that's often the starting point. And then we do things like geophysics. So we look at, take surveys like radar surveys that can allow us to see what's beneath the ground without actually digging it up. And that's something that we've used in Repton for the excavations there for the last two years. We've used uh, ground penetrating radar and found some, some features, some blobs and lines that we've then targeted for excavation and you'll see you'll do that on, even on a site that's already been excavated yeah in this case yeah so we we what we wanted to do in Repton we, we knew some parts were excavated in the 70s and 80s but there were some big blank spaces where we knew they hadn't done anything and we wanted to see what what else was there so you can then use those archives from the older excavations as well and you say well I know what happened here I know they had graves I know they had built buildings and then you can see what happens next to it and and giant jigsaw basically <laughs> so the work on the on the burials at repton i mean obviously this has sort of you know gotten you a tremendous amount of unexpected attention but for listeners who might not have heard of the archaeological significance of repton uh can you just explain the history of the site a little bit yeah so we know that repton was a very important monastery in anglo-saxon times uh it was probably founded uh sometime in the late 7th century it was very wealthy uh, it had a, a large number of royal graves there and we know from the anglo-saxon chronicle that in the winter of 873 to 4 the great viking army or the heathen army uh, attacked repton and took up winter quarters there and they sent the the Anglo-Saxon king into exile in Paris and installed a sort of puppet king in his place. So there were all these records. There are a few found uh, discoveries in the uh, antiquarian period. So sort of 17th century finds uh, on the side suggesting there might have been something archaeological, something Viking there. And then in the 1970s and 80s, uh, Martin Biddle and his late wife, Berta Schorbe Biddle, excavated the site. And they found evidence of this uh, army winter camp uh, for the first time. And it was a, an absolutely remarkable discovery. They found uh, a huge ditch, which was thought to be a sort of dis defensive enclosure that probably uh, was the actual winter camp and uh, a large number of graves as well. Uh, and that included the, the sort of very well-known Viking graves, the warrior, uh, the double grave, a warrior with a Thor's hammer around his neck, a uh, Viking sword, uh, lots of quite severe injuries. And he was pretty much as a sort of Viking as you, you get really, <laughs> in, a, in a burial. Um, and then in addition to that, in the vicarage garden next door, there was a mass grave under a mound, which contained the bones of nearly 300 people all mingled up together. And uh, with them were artifacts, including Viking weapons and also coins dating to exactly 872 to 875, Jeez. which is... Yeah. <laughs> So as perfect as you can get, this is what you wish for as an archaeologist, you know, all the evidence was there. Right, and then, yet there was this problem. Yeah, so the problem was the radiocarbon dates, because everything was screaming uh, greater army. <laughs> they were mainly men, for example, there's 80% of them were men, they were very tall. Um, and, um, and then about 20 different individuals were radiocarbon dated, and while a few of them dated to the 9th century, like like we thought they would, uh, several actually dated to uh, the 8th or even the 7th century AD, which is before the Viking Age altogether. So that meant that this was really not consistent with the Great Army War Dead. Uh, and that really became the big controversy. If the dates were wrong, who were these people? Um, surely they couldn't be the Viking Great Army. And that burial pattern then would suggest sort of a, a site that was being used maybe by a community over the course of generations and not a large burial all at once. Yeah, so it's clear that the bones were put down in one go. So basically, it's, it's a bit complicated, but basically there was a, a one building... Uh, a two-roomed building, which uh, was an Anglo-Saxon building, probably from maybe the 8th century. And uh, it was partially ruined, so it had been destroyed, uh, cut down. And then 
it was used as a workshop for a little bit. There was lots of metal working waste and things like that. And then in one compartment, in one of the rooms, a clean layer of red sand had been put down. And on top of that, um, all these bones were placed. And they're what we called secondary burials, which means that there are people who had been buried somewhere else beforehand. And once their bones or their, their, their bodies had turned into skeletons, they were taken out of the ground and put in this chamber. So the deposits clearly was put down at one time. But it now seemed like with these dates that that the bones were maybe collected over a long period of time. It was suggested that maybe they were from the monastic cemetery in Repton. Um, that maybe, you know, when the Vikings dug this great big ditch, uh, that they came across old bones and just thought, oh, we'll, we'll better put those somewhere. <laughs> put them nicely in this little room. Um, which right struck me as a bit of an odd thing to do if you're an invading army uh, desecrating a monastery but uh, anyway um so here's the kind of answer that you might come up with if you don't have any way of doing a more sophisticated analysis of the remains yeah it's completely understandable and i think if i was faced with that as well uh those were the sort of answers that i was looking for so i think that's completely uh to be expected when you have that evidence because clearly you know it was showing different dates but but there was obviously something a bit odd with it. So that was part of the research that I've been doing was looking into these dates and seeing if there was something else going on. So you and your team have found a solution to the problem. Can you explain that a little bit? Uh, yes. I know the details are still forthcoming, so I don't want you to give away anything you can't give away. But <laughs> Yeah, but no, we can definitely talk about the dates. Um, so basically... Uh, a few, there were a few possibilities for what was going on here. Um, so w the one thing to check was if the technology was was okay. So if the actual dating technique was okay. So uh, before I got involved, they uh, sent off some new samples to be tested again at a different lab to see if everything was fine. And the results were sort of the same. That you still had these groupings of some that were much earlier. Uh, but they also sent in samples from some of the individual burials uh, in Repton, so not the mass grave. And that included one man who, uh, grave 529, he was buried with a, a ring. And the ring has parallels in the, in the Viking world in, in Sweden, uh, for example. So it's a very sort of uh, Scandinavian Viking type ring. He also had coins. He had five coins buried with him dating to 872 to 875. So... Again, you know, great. Um, but the radio, yeah, very helpful, very kind and considerate Vikings. Yes. Gotta make sure that but, when I'm buried, I'm buried with coins from that year. Absolutely. I'm going to have a little plaque buried with me. <laughs> um, so the issue then was that the radiocarbon date for this man uh, came out to about 700 AD. So actually, he didn't date to the period of the coins at all. So it was clear that there was something wrong uh, with the dates. Um, and something was. Something was fishy uh, with those dates. Um, uh, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I had to do that. Um, yeah, so that's what I was looking into, trying to find out what this discrepancy uh, was all about. Um, so to understand what was going on, you have to understand about how we radiocarbon date bone and what we date. And so that's where it gets a bit more technical. That's the kind of thing that, frankly, I'd like to learn about and that I'm sure other people would as well. Yeah, excellent. Okay, so... The issue is that when we radiocarbon date bone, we date the carbon that's in our tissues and we have carbon uh, in our skin, our hair, our bone, everything. And we get that into our bodies uh, through the food that we eat. So when I just had my sandwich for lunch, that had carbon in it. That carbon came from the grain that you know was grown in the bread, from the plants and ultimately from the atmosphere. So it's all coming into our bodies. And when we die, we stop taking up new carbon and uh, we can date that time since we died, basically. But the issue is that not all carbon is quite equal. So you have carbon in the atmosphere and in uh, plants and animals, but there's also carbon in the oceans. Now that carbon in the oceans uh, has been circulating around for a very long time. It gets into the ocean from the atmosphere and then it sort of circulates for hundreds of years. So a fish swimming in the ocean will be consuming carbon that's basically much older than, say, a sheep on land. And what that means is... If a Viking uh, kills a fish and kills a sheep on the same day, buries them both in the ground in the year, you know, 900 AD, mm -hmm. and I come and dig both that fish and the sheep up on the same day in my excavations and radiocarbon date them, it will look like the fish is much older than the sheep. 
And that's just because of the different carbon that they have been eating. Um, and the difference is about 400 years. Wow. So it's quite quite a lot. That's, yeah. um, I mean, that's significant. It's really significant. And the reason why it's important to us as archaeologists is that that's also passed on up the food chain. So if that Viking actually ate the fish uh, or ate the sheep, the carbon that he was getting into his bones and his skin and his hair would also have that age difference. Is this the, it's called the marine reservoir effect, yes? Yes, uh, that's right. Is that something that would affect all sea life or is it more likely to affect fish than say a sea mammal or how does that, is it everything in the water is affected? Pretty much everything in the water that's consumed carbon. So pretty much everything alive in the water right. will have... Uh, but how much in the way of uh, walrus and seal and whale and so forth will be consumed in Iceland or Scandinavia? Yeah. You know, that, so that too would then affect any remains that were found. Absolutely. Any seafood uh, will be affected. Uh, same with freshwater fish. So in, in lakes and rivers, if you eat a lot of freshwater fish, you would also be affected by this. And in some parts of the world, it's a huge problem. So in Iceland, for example, some of the freshwater uh, resources there have got a huge uh, what we call freshwater reservoir effect in that case, uh, which is massively different. And so... God only knows how old that water is. Yeah, exactly. So he's got all these old carbon so around so it's a really important problem and it's one we need to take seriously and unfortunately it hasn't really been taken seriously <laughs> until quite recently um, so what you need to do the, the difficult part is actually that you have to work out roughly how much each individual uh, had consumed so how much seafood each individual consumed and because you can't really make assumptions about that you said 300 bodies in this grave <laughs> yeah we didn't we didn't date all of them. We could only date a few. It's too expensive, too time-consuming, unfortunately. Um, but you need to make those estimates because uh, you might eat more or less fish than me, for example. And the same was certainly the case in the Viking Age as well. And we can't really make those assumptions. So you have to look at each individual. So we can use other techniques, something called stable carbon isotope analysis, which is again a reflection of what sort of foods. There are differences between fish and um, and terrestrial-based foods in stable carbon isotopes, and we know that relatively well. So we can measure uh, the values in one individual and then situate them on a sort of sliding scale and say, okay, this guy roughly got 50% of his protein from marine sources so you do that take that into account stick it all into uh, a computer program and that will tell you how much of this offset this 400 year difference we have to take into account um, and during that uh, meant that this man uh, grave 529 the one with the coins his state he ate actually quite quite a bit of fish and uh, his state then fitted absolutely perfectly with what the coins were suggesting which is great. So I then did that first and thought, yes, I'm onto something. And uh, went back with a mass grave uh, and uh, put all the values in for each individual. And uh, I think this was probably one of the best moments in my, my career to date was when I got this graph back. And all these dates just lined up perfectly. And they all fitted perfectly with the dates in the ninth century. So all of those that were earlier were the individuals who'd eaten um, most seafood, basically. Yeah, it was, it was, it was quite satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> is there really that kind of eureka moment or is this a slow accumulation of evidence? Do you actually get a printout with all those numbers and you just kind of pop a champagne bottle and pretty much yeah it all comes up on the computer screen you sort of put in all the code and all the data and then you press run and then you wait and then a page loads and and you see the graph on the page and you think yes <laughs> perfect <laughs> what i wanted so yeah it was it was good fun and how much so you've compressed all this for us but how long a project has this been how much work did this take so that was only really one element. So I worked with various collaborators as well, and they started working on it before before I did. Uh, that part, there's a lot of learning in it as well. Uh, so for me, learning all about how to use the programs, how to do the lab work, uh, it, that all takes quite a long time. Uh, I've been working on this project for five years, um, but that includes looking at other bits of evidence as well. Uh, it's very time consuming. A lot of it is time spent in a lab uh, doing very, very tedious, very boring things, a lot of chemistry, a lot of, you know, lots of spreadsheets. It's not very glamorous. It sounds great at the end, but... 
it's a lot of time swearing over graphs and, and spreadsheets. <laughs> right. Less Indiana Jones, more Marie Curie. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so are there any um, special problems that arise when you're studying the Vikings in England um, as opposed to the English in England? Right? I've only ever been to a site studying English monks. I'm thinking about in terms of uh, site contamination or treasure hunters. I know that's always a problem uh, or modern social political stakeholders, that kind of thing. People who have a, a reason to want an interpretation of the Viking evidence or of the evidence of Vikings in England particularly. We're quite lucky. I don't think we really have um, many problems like that. We don't really have um, different groups getting involved. Uh, there's a lot of enthusiasm for it and trying to understand uh, the Viking impact. Uh, people do know that the Vikings did have a, a really great uh, impact on England as a country. And kids learn about that in school as well. So it's People are very, very welcoming, very positive, and it's quite in in England. It's also relatively easy to work on human remains. We don't have any other groups that that you know have other sort of uh, rights towards those remains. We don't know um, whose sort of ancestors they are, <laughs> as it were. So we can we work it. I mean, you still have to adhere to lots of ethical. Um, conditions obviously and you have to get you know permissions and so on but apart from that it's quite lucky i mean there is uh, an issue with access to sites with finding sites um actually quite recently and something that's quite exciting is that a lot of new finds found a lot of new artifacts have come up and come to light through metal detectorists work sure. and there's a winter camp at torxy which is where the great army was the year before repton that was essentially discovered through the work of just amateur uh, metal detectorists um, yeah and that's having a huge impact and it's actually very exciting um, we have issues with uh, how to find out about that and uh, how that's reported uh, legally you can metal detect uh, with just permission uh, of the landowners uh, you have to report certain things uh, precious metals for example but other than that you can you can go out and do it but uh, a little while ago the government set up a program called the Portable Antiquities Scheme, which encouraged voluntary registration of uh, artifacts found uh, in a, an official database. That's available online. It's got hundreds of thousands of objects on it. You can go online at finds.org and you can type in Viking sword or whatever, and you can look for them, look at coins, look at maps, and it's an incredible resource, and it's really transformed how we find the Vikings. And we'll set up links for that on the website, so people who are listening to this, don't worry about writing it all down. We'll, we'll have the links <laughs> there for you. So um, what kind of material are you finding at the Repton site? I mean, you, you mentioned the coins, uh, yeah. the, the Thor hammer. Yeah. But what other kinds of things are being buried? What, is, what are the circumstances of these burials? Yeah, so a lot of the burials don't actually have very much at all. So that's part of uh, what I've been looking at. There, there are an awful lot of burials around the church uh, in Repton that have no grave goods, no artifacts, because burying uh, bodies with grave goods went out of fashion. Uh, it wasn't something you did in Anglo-Saxon England at the time. So we have all these graves with no information apart from the body itself. So, uh, so it's hard to tell, you know, who were they? Were they Vikings? Were they Anglo-Saxons? Were they immigrants? You know, don't really know. So that's part of the work I do is looking at evidence for geographical backgrounds and mobility and so on. But uh, the rest of what we're doing at Repton, so in our, my ongoing excavations there, we, we're also looking to find out more about the actual winter camp that was there, the one we, we know about from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Yeah. And um, what other sites like Torxy have shown is that there was actually quite a lot of things going on in the camp. So the, the Vikings would go and stay for several months in the winter and then move on in the spring on the next sort of campaign. And we're now starting to understand what they were doing in those sort of three to four months of sitting around, really. Um, and so the, the great work, the Repton, uh, sorry, at Torxy uh, by Dawn Hadley and Julian Richards, especially, uh, have also written a lot about that, showing that there's a lot of craft work going on. And there was even trade, there's evidence for uh, weights that were used in, in trade uh, and, and craft working. So and we're trading with the community around them yeah, while they're yeah. taking a break from raiding that community. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, the historical records uh, do say for certain years, and especially the year before it talks to you, that they made peace with the Mercians. So how 
mutual that sort of peace was i think i imagine that there really weren't necessarily that many benefits from 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 the anglo-saxons to to make peace but who knows um so they were definitely doing that sort of thing we also think that they were doing a lot of repairs um you have to have a lot of weapons obviously if you're going to go and attack and take on alfred the great and his his troops then you need to be very ready for that and so you need to make and repair weapons we know they had ships so we've actually uh in the last two summers we've found two clinker nails two two viking ship nails in Rapson, which I was very excited about because they're very specific to Viking ships. Uh, there's no reason why they would have them in a, in a monastery uh, next to a church. So if you're finding those nails, then that suggests that they're doing the repairs. They're making new nails there on the site. Yeah, absolutely. And we found lots of slag, which is metalworking waste. So we know that they're doing that there. Uh, I mean, we know these ships, the the nails rust very easily. uh, And so they would have constantly needed repairs, needed new nails to stick them back together again. Um, We also found lots of weapon fragments and things. So I I, I think they must have been making weapons, uh, all the equipment that they need. We're talking about an army of several thousand people, probably, um, moving around the country for, you know, almost a decade or, well, more than a decade really and they're going to need so many things and so it looks like that these winter camps are really where they where they do those things and they get ready for the next attack so we're able to reconstruct a great deal we you are able to reconstruct (laughs) a great deal about what life is actually like for this army i mean just during those years and years they spent i mean they're sort of having to build an entire society for themselves a mobile society which i suppose they're somewhat used to but in semi-hostile territory yeah, absolutely. And uh, that's really interesting. And some of the good work people like Julian, um, Dawn Hadley and Julian Richards have talked about that at Talksy, that these are almost like little proto-towns. These are little mobile communities. Um, and you'd have lots of hangers-on as well as the craft workers, people who weren't necessarily part of the army. We have uh, lots of suggestions that they were women and children uh, as well. So they weren't just men uh, there. And yeah, I really think that they must have been a little sort of micro community uh on the move but it's so much i mean it's it's so much different than or it's so much more nuanced than what you find in the literary evidence or the historical evidence where you've got i mean these these clear political agendas at work I mean, when the anglo-saxons uh, are describing the great heathen army as being led by ivar havdan and the devil yes. but, but yeah hearing about and they were trading with the local community and they were yeah. repairing their ships and they were raising families. And Yeah, exactly. And I think that's what the power of this sort of uh, archaeological work is that you're getting a little bit more of the full picture. You're not just getting that sort of high-end political statement um, from which a lot of those records, historical records, are pretty much propaganda and they are sort of making the case for why poor Alfred uh, was being hassled and <laughs> uh, had such a difficult time, you know, so that they've got uh, different objectives, different reasons for putting all of those those things down. But actually the, the reality, the day-to-day life of your Viking uh, raider or the hanger-on uh, is going to come out of the archaeology, I think. But speaking of the literature, when you're looking for uh, or looking at the evidence of archaeological work, how willing are you to access something like a literary text or an historical text, knowing that they often have these agendas at work? Um, when we think about something like the Great Heathen Army's activities, their movements from year to year, uh, do you look at something like, or do you even consider something like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle or the Sagas or Saxo Grammaticus or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that it's, it's really important and we have to do that. We have to look at all the, the available evidence, uh, especially for, for something like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. We, we now know, I mean, Repton is perfect. You have the archaeological evidence and the written records are saying the same thing. You've got the dates, you know, everything stacks up. So even though there are those issues with motivations for writing them and so on, um, they also clearly have an awful lot of evidence uh, in them. And I think things like the sagas, which obviously have issues if you're trying to use them as as real historical evidence you have to you know take that that yeah yeah just things like that um with a pinch of salt but actually there's a lot of 
social information in there, I think, which uh, which we can take into account. And, and you use it to try to find uh, similar examples, so trying to find any parallels, you know, things about behaviours, about um, what uh, people might do in certain circumstances, uh, perhaps evidence for things like feasting. You know, I, I spend a lot of time looking at diets and food as well. And things like sagas can tell us about the sort of social importance of, of, of a feast, for example, which we can't necessarily get from, you know, my spreadsheets and my graphs. Um, so I think it's extremely important to use all of that evidence in parallel. But but we also need to be a little bit uh, critical. And I think, especially in England, I think something like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle has been possibly giving a bit too much weight. And so this sort of idea that we know what the great army did year for year, and then we've looked for that and then we said, well, yes. And it, But it says that in 874 they left Repton, and it doesn't say that they came back, you know, so we, we sort of take that uh, for granted. But actually, some of my work is now showing that actually there seems to be as clear Scandinavian ongoing presence in Repton uh, going into the early ninth, uh, so early 10th century, uh, which we don't have any evidence for in the historical records. So we need to sort of make sure we don't rely on it too much, I think. Right. Well, and, you know, even earlier when you were talking about those coins found with the body, it, my ears perked up when you said that the coins were from 872 to 875 because Repton, yeah. the, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is very clear that it was just that one winter that they were there and it they left by 874. So yes. Just those burials are suggesting a longer presence and a, a more permanent settlement. Yeah, quite possibly. And then a lot of the sort of later evidence as well is, is really suggesting that uh, – there are people with a, a sort of Scandinavian identity of some description uh, or that are linking themselves to this great army um, and this sort of population there. So we just don't, we don't know what happens and we need to be quite clear that just because the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says so, <laughs> we don't know what that means. So when it says that the army left, it, it talks about the leaders, it talks about Halfdan going north and Guthrum uh, and the other two going south. Uh, but that doesn't mean that everyone really. there could well be people uh, who stay behind or who came back a few years later we don't know that well even the sources themselves will say i mean you know if you look at ivar the boneless you know you've got sources saying that he's buried in york sources saying that he's buried down south sources saying he dies in ireland yeah you know, that yeah he's he's all over the map and yeah. obviously that means there's <laughs> at least two or three false stories absolutely and i think quite a lot of the time they the, the people who wrote these things down wouldn't have known uh they would have gone on you know rumors or on you know partial knowledge or whatever um or they might just have made it up entirely right, well, we don't know as we are always banging on about on the podcast the sagas are most often uh, three to four hundred years removed from these events that they're writing about yeah so exactly. it's you know it's it's very much like uh one of my students trying to reproduce uh, the story of shakespeare's life on the basis of things they've heard about shakespeare yeah, absolutely. And not having access to all the, the, the sort of sources of evidence that we have today, you know, at the time they would have even even less to to refer to. So, yeah. Right. So what what, if anything, are you still looking for answers about with the Great Heathen Army or with the Repton site? So I think there's there's quite quite a lot of things we we are looking for really. Uh, we still don't know quite how big the camp was. We um, we now think it was slightly larger than what was previously thought in the 70s and 80s, but uh, we don't know the demographically. Yeah, physically, yes. So it was thought originally that it was just inside this D-shaped enclosure that was reconstructed uh, based on the, the the older excavations, and we've now found this sort of material, like the ship nails, for example, uh, outside of that enclosure. So it looks like uh, it probably extended quite a bit. So that's one thing. Um, but I'm really interested in in this thing about what happens in Repton afterwards. Um, is there this ongoing presence? Because uh, if you remember that mass burial, there was a mound built on top of that. So there was a, a sort of stone mound there. And later on, the whole area was used for burial, um, the whole sort of next to the church of St. Wiston's, which is uh, right next to this mound as well. Uh, and some uh, burials about for about three generations worth in the early 10th century, people were burying their dead right into and on top of this burial mound. And they were separate from the rest of the cemetery. These were people who uh, they had uh, stone coffins. A lot of them had 
very wealthy clothes. They had gold embroidery. They had uh, lovely artifacts, these little silver um, pendants on, on sleeves and things like that. Um, and, and they didn't have that in the other cemetery, in the rest of the cemetery. So there was a, a group of people uh, very soon afterwards who for some reason decided to put their dead right on top of this mass grave. These are people who have done very well for themselves in the area. Yeah, absolutely. Some of them had uh, quite severe traumatic injuries, so there are evidence of, of violence as well. Um, so who were they? <laughs> Why are they there? And um, the suggestion is that they might have been part of this Scandinavian elite uh, group that still has control over the area. And if we accept that this mass grave was that of the great army, and they were the ones who took over this part of uh, Anglo-Saxon Mercia, then perhaps these people are actually asserting their link, their sort of uh, heritage, as it were, uh, and their connection with that sort of founding Scandinavian um, group and population. Um, so that's one of the things I'm trying to find out more about at the moment. And I mean, you know, you think about something like that, and you, you look at a text like Orkneyinga Saga, uh, where the the idea of a sort of an England and then a separate Scandinavia and then a separate Scotland just doesn't stand up, even just to that kind of literature, that kind of sort of imagined history. Where it's, yeah. there are these people are living alongside one another, they're commingling families, they're commingling homes. Yeah. So something like that, where it's sort of a slowly disintegrating sense of a communal identity within the larger community. Um, yeah. And that's that's a fascinating idea. And it, it supports something like the literary evidence, which otherwise might feel a bit idealized. Yeah, and I think that's I think those personal connections were far more important than the sort of bigger idea of an, a, a cultural identity. I don't think you had well. I'm a Viking. You're an Anglo-Saxon. We don't talk. But you talk is more about who you are, who your family are, who you're related to. And if you look like something like the settlement of Iceland and the records of that settlement, you know it reads very much like a sort of family history or you know almost like a phone book and in this area was such and such was the son of this person and they came from that region and it's all about those family relationships I think and who you're connected to uh, much more than any sort of deeper sense of, of regional identity or anything like that so I, I, I imagine that's the same thing that we're seeing with these because these really are the first Scandinavian settlers in England and this is the sort of first generation of uh, Viking migrants or, or settlers and they need to stake some kind of claim to the area and their descendancy and we see that quite often all over the world really that you know it's showing your sort of um, your right to an area and it's sort of to do with your family and you said well you know my father came here <laughs> he was the one who chased King Burgred across the sea and now I'm here you know so finding out those connections is, and actually it's quite exciting. I'm working on another collaboration to look at some ancient DNA, uh, which should be coming out from, from Repton, from these Vikings. Uh, hopefully we'll, we'll get that out later in this year, uh, where one of the things is to look at actually family relationships, because we can do that now. We can see if, if there are any family links and ancestry uh, among those people, which should be very exciting. That would be awesome. Yes. So that, that leads me to a different question, which may take us in a totally different direction. But there's a, <laughs> I know that there's a smaller burial near the main site, uh, which is a, a, has been interpreted as a group of child burials. Yes. And there's been some debate about what that means, and I've read a couple of wildly different interpretations <laughs> of this smaller site. Where do you weigh in on that, or do you have uh, a clear sense of what's going on there? Yeah, um, I have some some ideas. Uh, so this is it's just south of the mass graves, the charnel grave, and it's a juvenile. So it's one grave which had four uh, individuals in it, all buried together. They're all uh, young, so they're between the ages I think it's seven and seventeen. And uh, at their feet is a uh, sheep jaw, uh, which is quite an unusual thing. Uh, it's more similar to what you would find in Scandinavian or Viking sort of graves. You have animal offerings quite often. Uh, and they're, they're, they're placed in a very sort of deliberate manner. So there's one, the probably the oldest uh, of these children is lying on his or her back. And then two are crouched uh, on top of him or her. Uh, and another, the youngest child, is facing the other way. So there's a really, really unusual deliberate grave um we don't normally see in this period you don't see four children buried together um really at all so that's unusual in itself it's also located right outside this charnel mound mm -hmm. 
And the new radiocarbon dates that we've, we've now published uh, show that they are uh, dating to right just about the same time. So about the time of the Great Army uh, or just after. So it's the suggestion was that this was a, a sort of sacrificial grave, that it was uh, put down there to mark this mound being closed and drawing on things, again, literary sources like the Eben Fadlan's uh, uh, account of the Volga uh, Rus Vikings and this, this Viking chieftain's burial where a uh, young slave girl is being sacrificed as a part of the burial ritual. Perhaps this was something similar. Um, we now know that at least two of them had evidence of violent trauma on their skeletons. Um, does that make them sacrificed? Uh, of course it doesn't. Right. <laughs> it's very difficult to find out, uh, to prove uh, a sacrifice mm -hmm. uh, in the archaeological record because you can die uh, and have traumatic injury for so many reasons. Um, so living in a military camp. Well, exactly, exactly. If the Vikings are marauding around, so they could they could have been injured in in a battle. They could have been children who lived in the monastery. We know that Anglo-Saxon monasteries had children uh, in them as well. They could have been just killed by the Vikings. So that I don't think we will ever know. <laughs> but it does seem very likely that the actual grave has something to do with this mass grave. Uh, it's located right outside my excavations this summer. Actually, we were able to show that uh, there was probably a path that went across uh, the, the Viking camp and it goes all the way across the site and right up next to this juvenile grave and towards the entrance to the channel, which is, I think, amazing. It was a really cool find. Um, we also know that there was a big marker there. So there seems to be a sort of post or something like that. So it looks like you have this grave for children right outside the entrance to 300 possibly dead Vikings. We don't know. Um, in this, this huge mound. Um, so that there's something very significant there. I, I think it's definitely a possibility that they could, uh, could have been a sort of sacrificial uh, grave. But they could also have been children of the Viking Great Army. They could have been right. some of those those kids who, were, who died in, in, you know, a battle or were attacked. Um, think, uh, maybe to some degree this goes back to uh, what we were saying earlier about trying to get into the mind of the people who actually lived there rather than trying to think about them as this alien people. Yeah. Um, and of course, if they're losing children over the course of the winter traumatically or due to weather or starvation or disease or whatever it is, of course there's going to be a desire to mark that specially. Yeah. Um, you know, and of course, as well, there could be the possibility of a sacrifice because of the great uncertainty, the great uh, fear possibly of being in this foreign land, being in this sort of semi-dangerous place. Yeah. Um, but that these, both those things fit the evidence that you have before you. But I feel like um, the sense that there's something special about these children's graves uh, yeah. It sort of flies in the face of a lot of that, uh, I think, very dry, older interpretation of historical evidence, right? That 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 uh, children were not terribly important. They weren't really sort of a, a significant part of the culture. And there's whatever happened to these children, they were significant. Right? They were yeah, important. absolutely. So uh, whether that was because of who they were in life or who they were in death, we don't really know. So was their significance, the fact that they died, was that the significance? You know, were they trying to appease the gods, or, you know, do something like that? Or was it because they were important children? Um, you know, just as Sackleti said, that's the one thing that we need to try to work out. And I think things like the sagas and the, the, the literature can maybe help us there and uh, get more of a sense of this sort of mindset, even if it's not quite the Viking mindset. It might get us a little bit closer than our 20 first century mindsets which are going to be very very different right of course uh, so is there and this is a, a just a question for you uh, is there a site or an object or a culture you'd most like to seek out in the future i mean you've you know this is this has been a very high profile piece of work um, and presumably that offers opportunities to you in the future to do different things uh, what are you what's your dream well, that's a very good question. I have to say, I have probably I worked still on. Working on this right yeah, now. yeah, actually, lots of dreams. Um, I've pretty much been. I think I've been extremely lucky. Two of my dreams from as a child was working on Easter Island and the Vikings, actually. And so I've already feel like I've fulfilled those dreams already. So that's great. 
I do, I do. I need to sit back down and go back to the drawing board. Um, I'd love to do more on the Vikings. And I'm actually also very interested in the Vikings that went east. Uh, and so I'm, I'm hoping to have more opportunities to go in that direction. I think there's still a lot, don't know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And just find out and seeing how that compares to the Vikings in the west. Um, and I think there's an awful lot of evidence there that we haven't quite got to yet. And we need to do more collaborations with people working in Eastern Europe as well. Because I think we can probably find out more about our Western Vikings by looking looking east as well. So hopefully that's another step. Yeah. Uh, and since, of course, this is a saga podcast, I feel compelled to ask, do you have a favorite saga or a saga figure? Uh, so I I really regret not having had enough time to read up on the sagas and spent very little time. So I need to find myself a good podcast or something to listen oh, to. I, I think. <laughs> yeah, so, so I can send one your way. Yeah, give me some ideas. Um, I have to say that the person I've been looking at the moment is um, it's probably sounds a little bit morbid, but uh, <laughs> in terms of my research, I've been reading about uh, the a man called uh, Leak Lodin or Corpse Lodin. Mm. Uh, come across him um now he got his nickname because he used to go out in the summer in greenland and seek out uh remains and dead bodies um that he found in places like caves and, and by the coast and he would take them back and give these people a proper a christian burial and they're mainly people who'd been shipwrecked and he found inscriptions on the walls quite often in runic inscriptions telling about their, their lives and what had happened to them, uh, which I think is great. And I love this idea that you would go out and actually make that effort and try to uh, save these people from their sort of fate, as it were. So at the moment, he's my one of my favorites. <laughs> well, it is part of that idea that, you know, that the bodies matter, right? that the, the remains are still important. Exactly. How they're treated and how they're left uh, matters to the culture uh, as well as to the people who are sort of specifically lo uh, in love with that individual or friends of that individual. The culture yeah. cares about what happens to the remains. Precisely. And I really like that. I like this sense that somebody would care enough to go out and spend, go to these quite difficult conditions just to make sure that these people who'd been in tragic circumstances uh, got to, to, you know, go to the afterlife or do whatever that, you know, they wanted happening to them. Well, Kat, thank you so much for talking to me. Uh, thank you. <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. So yeah, fingers crossed for the continuation. Yeah. So uh, if people are interested in learning about the work that you've done, where would they, where would they look for these articles? So you can read the full text, uh, all the background and all the, the science and however much you like uh, in the article. It's open access, which means that it's free for everyone to get uh, and read. If you go into a search and yeah, if you're going to a search engine and put in antiquity Viking great army, then that will take you to the journal. It's published in the journal Antiquity. And uh, yeah, you can just access, download it, read it and um get the full data it's open access so we can put in a link to that on the website as well yes you so can yeah who's interested can uh click over and give that a read uh maybe before or after uh finishing this interview yes absolutely wonderful great okay thank you so much for taking the time for this <laughs> yes thank you it was nice to meet you I know there's nothing Andy hates worse than having to fix microphone pop due to plosives. So it's time for fun with plosives. Plosive percussion provides pounding puffs, producing particularly problematic popping perturbations. Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. A peck of pickled peppers Peter Piper picked. All right, that ought to do it.